Cinematic immunity. Cinematic immunity. We're fired. Somebody's fired. Not it. I'm it. <laughs> Cinematic immunity. Information overload. I might have to just run out of the room and leave a big Kool-Aid manhole on the wall. Cinematic Cinematic immunity. Tell people not to swing the mic around. <laughs> that's, a good, that's, that's a good plan. Right? You know, I have no problem with you telling people that. That seems like an important safety tip. Just been revoked. This week, Sir Bruce Logan, ASC, the DP of Tron, worked on Star Wars, Star Trek, 2001, Airplane. This man made my childhood. Debt of gratitude is in order. Indeed. This was the greatest podcast that we are playing this week. This is the one that's going to make us podcast of the month. We're king of the podcasts. This is the one that's going to bring us to the top of the heap. This is the one you've been waiting for. This is the one you've been waiting for. It's the one I've been waiting for. And me too. It was really good. We had a really good time with Bruce. We'd ask a little simple question and he'd give us gold. Plus, I just like listening to his accent. Yeah, the British accent is a thing. Yeah. It helps that he's, you know... A brilliant creative genius. But most importantly, British. Yeah, yeah, it's a British thing. <laughs> and as a Dominican, I must call him sir. It's it's important. It's the law. It's his birthright. If if it was British, sir, then I wouldn't care. I mean we fought a revolution to get away from that nonsense. But the Dominicans knight you, I call you sir. Plus he deserves it. Yeah. Hey man's been around a long time. Done a lot of really good films. Little films you've never heard of. Films like what, Brian? His first film was 2001. Very first Space one. Odyssey. Right to the top. Yeah. That's, that's good. Then he went on to work on something called Star Wars. That was nice. Yeah. Blade Runner. Little thing called Star Trek, the motion picture. Sure. Fear, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Airplane, Batman Forever, you know, little things, little independent, you know, nonsense little movies that nobody's ever seen. I friggin' love Tron. All right, kids, grab your light cycles, your X-Wings, and your suitcase full of drugs. This is Cerberus Logan, ASC. As you hopefully saw in our blog, our guest today has uh, given us some of the most memorable film images of the last few decades, uh, including some of my personal favorites. Uh, Sir Bruce Logan, director of photography, race car driver, pilot, humanitarian. He's told us amazing stories and accompanied them with equally incredible special effects. He's done it all, and some of the highlights include 2001, Star Wars, Star Trek, Tron. We're just going to jump right into it. Okay. I spent all day reading your, your resume. Well, sir. let's let's correct one thing. I, I I am a knight in the Dominican Republic. Yes. But but, but not uh, not in my homeland. But I'm a quarter so, Dominican, so it's important to me. So I good. say, sir, okay. sir, Bruce Logan. <laughs> 
<laughs> when you're raised under the queen, you have to make that. that, that yeah, you do. I could get into big trouble. The, these trouble. distinctions are very important. I don't want you to get in trouble with, with the empire or anything. Um, so, what were your influences as a young man that led you into the business? I suppose uh, Walt Disney was a huge influence in. <clears throat> In my background, you know, I had I'd grown up wanting to be a Disney animator. And I suppose that's how I began in the business. I started as a self-taught animator when I was 12 years old. And while the other kids are at the beach, I'm sitting up in my attic and I'm flicking through uh, cells and uh, making my first animated films. And my dad bought me a camera when I was uh, 14 that actually took still still pictures one after another, a movie camera that took individual frames, and I was then able to put all the cells that I'd been doing all this time uh, onto a strip of film. And it was uh, 9.5 millimeter, which is a very strange, uh, very arcane French gauge of film, uh, which preceded Super 8 as an amateur gauge. And it was remarkable in, in that the picture size was as big as 16 millimeter, because there were no perforations on the side. The perforation was actually in the rack line between the frames, which was fantastic until the claw missed and put a huge scratch down the middle of the frame. And then, yeah, probably the reason why that system didn't I stick think, around. I think so. But let's put the sprocket holes on the edge. <laughs> so it started as a cartoonist. We were just talking outside about how Walt Disney got his start here in this building. Yeah, Walt Disney um, produced uh, some of his early, early works in uh, one of the studios downstairs. That's fantastic. Something about Los Feliz and all the history that there is around here. There's just this, you can practically walk around anywhere in this area and somebody from 50 years ago that you know of did something within a stone's throw. That's great. Well, my friend Ian, who I grew up with, and I did lots of kind of dynamated uh, movies with, we used to go to Pinewood Studios and kind of stand outside because he, 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 he moved away to this house very near... Pinewood Studios, and Peter Ellenshaw, a matte painter for Disney, lived on the upstairs apartment of this big Georgian mansion, and he invited us to go around Pinewood Studios to watch him making In Search of the Castaways with Haley Mills. Of course, I had a huge crush on Haley Mills, and... Uh, Disney actually walked up the steps up to his apartment, so I was, it was kind of like hallowed ground for me, and I would be uh, just totally enamored with that. But you know, the so my fascination with Disney turned into uh, being hired through my work into a small animation company in Elstree, England, and. That, in turn, led to Doug Trumbull coming to town to work on Stanley Kubrick's 2001. And they were looking for, they were looking for people to come and do animation with them. <clears throat> and, of course, in England, when you grow up and you have a job in a company, you're kind of a lifer with that company. You don't think... You think very carefully before, like, going and doing a two-month gig on a, on a feature film, you know, the freelance business was very different in those, especially in the animation business. So 
But I was footloose and fancy free, and I, you know, I had been a a, a, a rostrum cameraman trainee at this company, and I was hired onto 2001: A Space Odyssey as a uh, an animation artist, and then that became. They found out that I knew how to shoot animation. And so the, this first part of working on 2001 was working on the readouts, all the little screens on all the spaceships that went. And they were fascinated that I knew how to animate and then I knew how to shoot, which left out this whole very laborious process in the middle called writing a dope sheet. In other words, the animator would sit and he'd do his animation, then he'd write up this dope sheet that told frame for frame exactly what was going to happen. For some other guy to come in. I'm, I'm, exactly. And uh, I was able to do it all in kind of missing that step. So I was very productive for them in terms of the, like the uh, readouts, et cetera. Not a bad first gig, 2001. My my first screen credit, <laughs> I, I have to say. <clears throat> We're finding a, a thread thus far that people's first gigs uh, may may have something to do with their level of success. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there seem to be outstanding since, stories. Okay. No, no, stop that. <laughs> uh, that was my first question was going to be, how did you uh, get into 2001? But you brilliantly answered it. Um, Anything, any other stories about 2001 you want to share before we... Well, how long do we have? No, um... We have as long as you want to talk, sir. <laughs> <laughs> You're uh, full of stories and we're going to get them out of you. Well, it was, it was definitely uh, the stars aligning for me to, to be hired onto that project because my father, had, who was a, a drama producer at the BBC, he had taken me to see all the, all the Kubrick movies, you know, and he took me to see Powers of Glory. Lolita was one of my favorite movies. And Dr. Strangelove, incredible movie. And so really the, my, you know, my favorite director in the whole world was Stanley Kubrick. And to be hired onto his project was just like uh, just an amazing dream come true. You know, absolutely fantastic. And it's my, there were, there were hundreds of people that worked on this film but there were only six visual effects screen credits, so I was singled out and given a credit by Stanley. So thank you very much, Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> Not bad for the kid. What What was it like working with Stanley Kubrick? Uh, Stanley was a very gentle, nice human being. Um, but at the same time, totally ruthless in terms of like what he needed to get done to to get his movie made. So he was kind of like this dichotomy of people. You know, he he. I, I I remember being sick for a couple of days, and he threatened to send a, an ambulance to my house so that they could bring me in on a stretcher, and I could continue to shoot animation. You know, but he if he was he would walk around. He would never have anything in his pockets. He loved loved the fact that he didn't have to carry ID. He didn't have car keys. He bummed cigarettes so that so that he was ap- absolutely clean of anything about his body. You know. And, you know, what what a filmmaker, you know, incredible experience. You know, it, it was funny because I used to be, I, I, I was the, obviously the kid working on the movie, you know, I think I was, I was 18, I think. And, uh, you know, I had this fantastic job, but I guess I didn't take it very seriously because, you know, everybody came in at eight and 
somehow I wandered in about 9.30 and, you know, there'd be Stanley coming in in his vintage Rolls Royce, you know. I'd say, hi, Stanley, and not not be kind of like that worried that I was coming in late for work, you know. And, you know, it's, it seemed like we'd kind of hang around in the morning and then we'd go to tea, tea break, very important in the English tradition. And then wouldn't really get much done until lunchtime. And then lunchtime's about an hour, you know. But then, I'd, you know, like 2.30 in the afternoon, I'd really start pounding down the uh, uh, the frames in animation. And somehow by the end of the shift, I'd got twice as much shot as any of the other cameramen that were working on the project. So I guess I was given a lot of leeway as so a kid. So the secret you know? is have a productive afternoon. Roger that. That's the lesson <laughs> I'm taking from that. Mornings are useless, productive afternoons. But Roger of course, that. now when I'm on a project, I like to get a, um, a shot like 10 minutes after the call time yep. and get that oh, re- I recorded down. <laughs> Why are we get, blocking get, so get, I can be lighting? What are we doing? Get, What's a shot, get it on the call sheet, first shot off at, first shot after lunch off at. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. Exactly. Those things are important. So I, I don't know where I picked that up, but I guess I did some. Along, along the way, way. <laughs> along the yeah. way, I'm sure. Um, so you finished 2001, and it's it's a success. It's not a huge success. It sort of it would roll into a cult film over years. You'd you'd have more experience later on with a film that snowballed slowly, as opposed to uh, well, it, it actually while I was working on it, it kind of petered out slowly because um, I was I was the I guess I was the first cameraman hired and the last to leave, and and Stanley left on the on a boat and train, and I guess he was still cutting the picture, and he was on his way to Culver City to time time the movie. And that left me as the, um, the only person left in what I was doing. He didn't want any of the foreign countries to have a, a dupe negative of the title sequence. So that left me shooting six foreign languages of the uh, opening title shot, um, which we used to call the occultation shot. Uh, the uh, the opening shot of the movie. So so somehow it was like me and the production accountant, and then it all kind of faded out. And then uh, you know. whatever PAs were left, right? Yeah. Does that technically count as a second unit, or is that the main unit at that point? I, I think it's the main unit. Just kind it's of only dribbling. one of the most important scenes in movie history. So I'm glad there was a lot of officers there to uh, supervise it. Um, but he would do a lot of that, though. Was he, from what I understand, for that opening sequence, he would have people phoning in with diagrams of how. Uh, their shot was framed out, and he would basically redraw their frame to figure out if that was the shot that he wanted for the movie. He'd like so you so you take the frame and you split it up into nine pieces, and then people would call in from some second unit somewhere far away, being like, "I have a shot, and it looks like this." And they would kind of draw the vectors out on that little nine frame thing, and Stanley would be like, "Oh, I need it like this, or do something different." I was under the impression that uh, I think from the behind the scenes that that was one of the processes he had used in that. Yeah, I was very much more, uh, you know, you'd go down to, you know, I mean, you're sitting there defending your dailies in 2001, uh, just you're sitting next to Stanley and he's looking at your work and he's like sitting in this chair up front, like much further forward, like really close to the screen. And he had this thing called a beer mug, which was actually a Selsun motor with a little crank handle on it. And he would be, he would actually run through focus on each of the shots. So instead of calling back to the projectionist and saying, hey, run through focus, that, that doesn't look good, you know, he'd actually be sitting there doing it himself. But it was really, it was really the hot seat when, you, when your footage came on, you know. And in fact, when, 
uh, the, when the volume of shots increased, I actually got, I got put off to the night shift to shoot animation. And at that point, I wasn't in dailies anymore because I was sleeping while dailies were on there. And <clears throat> I had kind of got railroaded by some, some by that time that there were some, there were some more kind of experienced animation cameramen that were working on the project and they they came along and they were like, they were they kind of disapproved of me because I was like so young and not really but I kind of got I kind of got the shaft at Dailies when I wasn't there to defend my own work and uh, I was in fact <clears throat> fired off 2001 and then rehired three weeks later and I said yeah I'd love to come back but I'd like double my salary please you know and uh, they went for it. So I continued on to the end of the project. So we're learning important lessons. Always be at dailies, be a good businessman to double your rate when they screw up and have to rehire you. Exactly. We're going to come up with bullet points. This is very, <laughs> this is good stuff. This is excellent stuff. Um, so eventually, George Lucas in 75 is trying to put together a little space opera. And he goes to uh, the 20th Century Fox uh, in-house effects department to find that they've been totally disbanded. So he goes to Douglas Trumbull and says, uh, can you put something together for my film? But he, Douglas Trumbull, can't work on it because he's working with Spielberg on Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So I guess my first question is, were you... Eventually, John Dykstra, who had been working with Trumbull, gets split off to form what becomes ILM, and you eventually go with him. What's the story? Is there is there a story there? Did you have a choice of different shows? Or well, I actually uh, I was actually got called for interviews on both of those projects. <clears throat> um, when I I was called in for an interview on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, um, while I was shooting a picture called Jackson County Jail for Roger Corman, and. I somehow got the wrong day, so I was sitting there on Saturday morning waiting for a waiting for a, an interview with Spielberg, and he never showed up. And I was like, I was, I was terribly pissed off. So I left the studio, and of course, he was waiting for me the next day. So he probably had exactly the same experience about me. So that's how that's how that came down. And George also interviewed me for uh, the effects director on on Star Wars but I you know I had I was very much more interested in live action photography than visual effects at that time and I always used to say oh I've done that you know which is like totally opposite than what I do now I like to incorporate everything that I know how to do and anytime I get an opportunity to do anything whether it be visual effects, whether it be directing, whether it be directing photography, writing, or whatever, I, I love to incorporate all the things that I do. But as an arrogant kid at those times, said, "Ah, no, I just want to be a DP right now, live action DP." So I focused on that. But <clears throat> in Star Wars, the I was kind of asked to join Apogee, and for the for the same reason, I I didn't join that company. Uh, <clears throat> it was a bunch of people that uh, were all in partnership. My brother-in-law, Bill Short, was in that partnership and, and a lot of my friends. But 
George came back from England and there had been no progress. Well, he, as far as he's, as far as he thought, there would been no progress on on the visual effects. In other words, there wasn't there wasn't a shot that had been shot as yet. But of course, they were developing the motion control that was like revolutionary to that film. It was the first time that you know in two thousand and one the models moved so slowly that there was no motion blur required for for that movement. But as soon as a spaceship starts to move at speed, you know, and it's animated, you have to have a motion blur that gives you the the feeling that it's uh, a live action object going through a going through motion. So he came back. <coughs> And he was very disillusioned, and he called me called me in for another uh, meeting and said, uh, "You know, I'd really like to I'd really like to get some guys in black velvet suits and put some spaceships on long sticks, and we're just going to fly them through the frame and zoom into them and zoom out of them, and you know, maybe we don't need all this motion control, you know." So I kind of like, well, mm, that's kind of interesting. I'm not sure how that's going to work. <clears throat> so it didn't work very well, but my unit that I had split off and became the pyrotechnics unit for Star Wars. And, of course, that is my claim to fame that I blew up the Death Star. Not Luke Skywalker. But tell, tell me everything. Don't, <laughs> yeah. Speak slowly. Don't tell me everything back. about destroying the Death Star. But, of course, I did also destroy Alderaan, but I don't really like to talk about that with all those innocent people. Well, it's a tough you know, subject. You know, I don't want right. to, you know, so, <clears throat> genocide is so difficult. So let's, let's not go there. Let's the stormtroopers just... deserved it. The exactly. residents of Alderaan? No. Right. Exactly. So, um, yeah, so that was... Interesting. We started at a very small stage on Berendo Boulevard called Berendo Stage. And it was, I don't know, I don't really know what the history of it. And I still don't know whether it was, it's there still. But. This was a studio out in Van Nuys or this was a different one? No, this was a studio. Berendo's kind of like, it's kind of in this neighborhood. Um, but. We started on this very small stage and we started shooting zero-G explosions. And the way we did zero-G is to get the camera and shoot directly up at an explosion that was happening directly over the lens. So obviously, you know, we were protecting the camera and the lens. But that's what gave the illusion of being in outer space and we called it zero-G. Jovis Kosal was a powder guy and... Um, he came in. He was about as young as I was, you know, or maybe maybe a little younger. Came in the first day. Though he's in he's in the dark dark room, the changing the little changing hut that's on the stage, and there's a big boom, and there, uh, you know, he comes out and his arms are all burned on the first day. So you know, so we were all. <clears throat> it was simpler days back then, and that shoe got bigger and bigger until we were on stage five at Raleigh Studios. Uh, which was then called Producer Studios. And we had a huge uh, 40 by 40 blue screen overhead that we lit with, I think, uh, 16 arc lights that all needed to be trimmed. And so... These are carbon arcs. These are carbon arcs. And uh, we were burning blue coal and they were they were fantastic for pulling, uh, pulling mats off blue screen because they were already blue. And... 
so the explosions got bigger and bigger and the cameras got uh, slower and slower. Um, so these weren't one-offs. You blew up the Death Star multiple times or? Well, we should. These models must be tough to build. They must. Yeah, I mean, we, we blew up a lot of X-wings as well. Mm -hmm. I would get, uh, you know, I'd, I'd rig up X-wings on um, uh, velvet sticks and then I'd gang up like three um, E-fans and put them in a big tube. And, you know, one of the things that makes things look miniature is the is the effects of um, you know in other words when you put a fan on a on a model, what happens is that the it's a vortex of air and you know like that's not really good look for outer space. So I built this huge kind of egg crate in front of the stacked egg crates in front of this fan, so that the air that the model was in was like absolutely dead straight and moving just like a like a wind tunnel would for a for a race car or in a research program. And we would we would blow these up, um, blew up X-Wings, uh, TIE Fighters, and obviously the uh, the big Death Star explosions got bigger and bigger with more and more titanium in them. Those were the little sparkly bits that came down over the over the lens. And um yeah, no, it was it was fun. We used to. I, I remember us kind of sitting there and kind of like wiping burning napalm off our arms. You know, and, you know the only safety thing we really had was I think we had we we had one fire extinguisher with us, maybe two, maybe a backup. You know? We got this, but that's it. You know. <laughs> um, real quick though, uh, about the vortex with the with the e fans that you had yeah. going on. So it was kind of you're saying that because you had them uh, ganged up the way you did, it was kind of like uh, instead of blowing wind out, it was almost almost like a vortex where it would pull the wind in? No, we, we actually ganged them up so that they're, they're, they're in series. So, in other words, that was just a way of getting three times as much volume and speed to the air. So when but, then, but at the end of that, then, then we built a, a tube with a bunch of veins in it that any spiraling air just started straightening out and going in a... Got it, got it. A, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. A straight line, you know. And so a lot of those a lot of those explosions were matted into the trench and you know the big flying sequence mm -hmm. and they were kind of used all over the so. X-wing tie fighter sequence. Yeah. Um about what scale are were most of your models? I guess um an, an X-wing was probably like 24 inches wingspan something like that. Um and of course everyone says how how big was the death star that you blow up but of course Frame one of the explosion was bigger than the Death Star, so really I never had any Death Stars with me. It was just like frame one of the explosion Got uh, it. Was, was the first cut after the, um, after the Death Star was sitting there right before it gets blown up. Just out of curiosity, did you see the special editions years later where he messed up your explosion with I have, uh, I computer have, effects on top of it? I have, Are you insulted by that? I or? have seen the ring. Uh, I'm, you know, I wasn't terribly offended, but I would like to get a copy. I don't think there's a Blu-ray edition without that ring on it as yet, you know. No, there's no Blu-ray edition, <clears throat> but this, the DVDs is, uh, he insists he's never going to release the original version, and every year he gets millions of requests, so they'll do it eventually. Well, Disney will do I, it. I think sure. now Disney has yeah. it. Yeah, Disney will do it. Yay, Disney. At the time, Star Wars was a relatively low-budget, independent film. 
and they've caught in the documentaries a lot of the time, the, certainly the shooting crew in England thought it was a bit of a joke because on set it looked horrible without the special effects, without the soundtrack, without all the stuff that is added in later. The, the, the crew's attitude is what in the world are we shooting? This is terrible. It's never going to be, it's never going to come together. Was it the same kind of attitude here that this seemed like a bizarre small project and uh, you know, how in the world is this ever going to come together? No, I think there was much more of a realization of what this could be here. You know, I know that, um, you know, I saw George speak at the DGA about a, <clears throat> a year or two years ago and he he got on stage and he was he, he he still seemed pissed off about these British technicians that like wouldn't work for him, you know. If they're going to work overtime on a on a show, it has to be a vote of the crew as to whether they're going to work overtime or not. And he said they would never they'd never give me any overtime, you know. And uh, the only people that worked for me that real that I really liked were the art department. You know, and then he had nothing to say good about like the the visual effects crew, and it's, it's like after all this time, please don't don't be <laughs> mad. You know, like, you know we had to hold a grudge. Right, <laughs> it it created a fortune. You know, so yeah, he um, he was he was an amazing guy to work with. He was the first guy that I'd ever seen that created uh, a ripomatic. And basically, he got movies like Tora, 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 and the Dam Busters, and he cut his fight sequences, his, his battle sequences, from these different movies. So he knew that he needed a 17-frame shot of a spaceship moving left to right and going into a going into a dive. So he would he was very organized in terms of how those effect sequences were built. The only difference from Kubrick was he didn't take the visual effects credit, as, as Stanley did, you know. Uh, but he, I think he was very instrumental in uh, creating those sequences. You know? Did you see a lot of storyboards on set when you were there? Was everything fairly well planned? It was, yeah. Yeah, I, have a, I still have a full set of storyboards that I just looked at the other day, and I was like, oh, gosh, this is a man. So... Um, I'll, I'll look all the way through those, but yeah, it was very organized, full, full, fully storyboarded movie. But I was especially, you know, fascinated by the uh, the Ripomatic, you know, which obviously in, in commercials later on, you know, that became de rigueur for, you know, the way that you put short projects together, and you, and now you know it's called previs, so, uh, and it's turned into a whole industry. What is the Ripomatic? The Ripomatic was the was the pre-cut uh, battle sequences to make the dogfight. He took <clears throat> old movies to show them this is what I want the plane to be able to do, and they recreated it with the uh, with the plastic models. Got it. Right, and and cut it into a black and white. So he, so he had his whole battle sequence, not with the the spaceships that he was going to use, but like all the movements and preset. You know, very very efficient way of working. Are you surprised that the film exploded into this uh, $10 billion empire? It's, it's got to be tough while working on it. It's, it's, it's got to sometimes be a crapshoot. You can never, never know what's going to be big, what's, what's not going to be big. Right. Well, it was funny. Coming off 2001 and then working on this, you know, it, it, it's very, it, 
it's I I didn't think it would be that big, but I did think it would be a success, you know. And when we all went to the cast and crew screening in Beverly Hills, I think at the Academy Theater, you know, we all looked at it and said, "Yeah, this is this is." And then, whoa, there's a, a movie here. A day later, you know, there were lines around the block. Right. You know, uh, people trying to get in to see this movie. So, what was the young Bruce like back then? Oh, he was. He's kind of a valley boy, kind of race car driver, you know. Mm-hmm. I was, uh, uh, I had my little Mini Cooper, and, and, and actually I spent more time at Apogee working in the machine shop building my race cars than I did actually working on any projects with Apogee, but, you know. No, just keep the, keep the mind active in all these different facets. Exactly, you know. But, um, yeah. I was probably uh, a lot less mellow than I am these days, you know. Um, I hear that happens. I, th- I, th- I think it does, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so somewhere around 77, 78, uh, a lot of that group moves up to San Francisco. Uh, you don't go with them. Is there any story there? Did they ask you to go with and uh, you well, wanted to stay in L.A.? Or? I wasn't really part of Apogee. Um, so I was always kind of like an, an outsider. But when I when I saw the company split up like that, I thought, oh, my God, all these guys, they're all selling their houses. They're going up to, you know, the the Bay Area and buying new houses. And then suddenly they're, they're trapped. It's a, it's a company town, you know. I thought, well, where's the future in that? Let's stay in Hollywood and, and work. But, of course, everything well, went rather well up there in uh, San Francisco, you know. <clears throat> Things things go well for ILM. That's absolutely they, true. They do. Did you um, did you ever run into uh, any of those early ILM staffers? Uh, anybody that ever went around to eventually become you know what Pixar became? Um, any of those early staffers? Even you know guys like Steve Jobs? Anybody that from the tech world that that uh, that the mainstream would recognize? Not not really. You know, obviously Dennis Muren was um, you know the. Uh, I guess Edlin didn't go up, but he wasn't really part of Apogee either. He broke off and did his own his own um, visual effects company. But uh, not not any of the of the those main big big dog players. You know? It's fair fair question. I just yeah. uh, thought that it would have been because uh, I'm that's that part of Americana interests me. You know, right. like how that happened. And, of course, there's a lot of documentaries on it, but I figured there might be a story, so I, I'd ask. Well, I, you know, I, I, I do see people that, uh, you know, John Lasseter and people like that that were, were just basically Disney animators, right? And then breaking off into their own thing, moving to Pixar and getting successful and then coming back to Disney again, coming full circle did you have any early experience with the Editroid? I didn't. You know, um, I wasn't really, you know, I am an editor these days. And, you know, I actually work in Final Cut. And I worked on some similar systems where, I forget what it was called, but you put in, you put in like 30, 32 VHS tapes and uh, it's making this kind of mechanical nonlinear edit. Every time, you know, you press the button and it programs each tape to play. And, you know, it's kind of, kind of pretty amazing. But um, that was a spin-off from the edit drive, but I never actually worked with... So the, the, the tape system that you're talking about basically had 
um, in essence, a copy of the tape that it could basically queue up at any point in time that it needed with an output to one one tape that was sort of like a, a, a linear edit system, but a linear edit system with a whole bunch of sources that it can pull from to make it feel like it's nonlinear. Exactly. A mechanical, mechanical version. Interesting. I, I, I started with deck to deck and toaster and all sorts of fun stuff when I was in high school. And, you know, I can imagine if I ever got my eyes on something like that, it probably could have sparked my interest to go a whole different way when I was 12, 13, 14. Well, I, you know, I remember sitting with two, three quarter inch decks doing edits on commercials and different things. And you're putting them together and you say, oh, we want to make a change. Oh, we got to go down a generation then and put the whole thing in. And, you know, by the by the time you got to your final cut, it was really pretty nasty looking because it had been duped so many times. And then there is obviously the need to online. You know, I, I think it's fantastic now that you know we can work with our original media right on the, right on the timeline and the whole. A lot of people are still onlining, and I have no idea why at all. Because to me, the whole thing is, you know, you're working you're working on a cut, and when it's finished, you render it out, and that's your movie. You know. Yeah. Some people just work more efficiently that way because they've just done it for so many years. Right. So in the wake of uh, Star Wars's success, Paramount decides to do a Star Trek movie based on a 60s TV show, uh, and they go to Trumbull, who again says, no, thank you. He's still working on Close Encounters. Uh, so they end up awarding the contract to Robert Abel and Associates. Um, how did you get involved in, uh, in that project? Well, I'd been working with Bob Abel since the early Trumbull days. When I, when I first came over here after 2001... Doug was doing some visual effects for an Antonioni picture called Zabriskie Point. And so we went out to the desert and we blew up thousands of pounds of napalm and <clears throat> with high-speed cameras. And we were doing this matte shot of L.A. of the whole world blowing up, which was the end sequence. But they never, they never used our material in the, in the final movie. And it sat in cans... Uh, for, I don't know, like 15, 15, 20 years. And finally, those explosions were used in the opening shot in Blade Runner. Okay. So well, we're going to talk about that soon enough. Okay. <laughs> but uh, so there I was at, at, at Trumbull, and, you know, I was kind of his, the guy the guy in the black room at Trumbull, and we we were doing versions of the slit scan machine that we'd, we'd worked on in 2001, and Abel had come in and he said, oh, I want to do some graphics for ABC. So there were, there were some very kind of characteristic multi-pass um, zooming graphics that we did. And so I got kind of hooked up with Abel and I was uh, director at Abel um, for some projects. But then, yeah, then he got, I guess he got the contract to do the Star Trek effects and worked again for, you know, it's kind of back to the same Star Wars thing of like he worked for, I don't know, a year and still hadn't shot a frame of film, you know. So um, so he was summarily fired from the project and there was a big article, I think, in Newsweek that says Abel neglects Trek effects <laughs> was the headline. Catchy. <laughs> It was, and uh, so uh, at that point, Trumbull came in and saved the day, and I think J. 
charged them four times the money or whatever, and they uh, took over and did, I think, a very good job on the effects for that picture. But to, to go round trip before it was a feature film, I had been hired by uh, Roddenberry and Paramount to, to work on a TV series, the next, the next TV series. And <clears throat> that never really got off the ground. But when it went to a feature film, uh, I guess I wasn't a big enough cameraman to, um, to shoot the picture. But I did shoot the opening sequence of that. So in the, in, at, at the end of the whole process, I shot the, the Cleon attack sequence, uh, which is the first four minutes of that picture, and worked with Robert Wise, and that was... Pretty incredible experience. Yeah. I found some great photos of you and Roddenberry next to pieces of the Enterprise Hall, and you're pointing at things, and you guys are having some kind of discussion really? about what stuff is going where. God, I would love to see I'll, that picture. We'll send them over, sir. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> there can't be that many people who shot both the Millennium Falcon and the Enterprise, so that's very cool. It's got to be a very cool exclusive little club. Well, I, I have to say that my... Um, my Star Trek experience was all live action, so I really wasn't involved in the uh, the, uh, the effects. But uh, they they were I thought they were done really well. Yeah. Uh, Robert Abel and Associates would later, uh, in the next year or two, go on to a project about a man entering a computer. Uh, it was a little show called Tron. Steal my heart, sir. Steal my heart. Involved in certainly. Um, I want to talk a little bit about its beginnings because they they did a very good they did a they did a somewhat okay version of the the director's story about how this all got together. I'm interested to hear where you come in where you come into the story. So feel free to interrupt me. Disney did not want to give twelve million dollars to a first time director, first time producer, although it would later swell to twenty million because of all all the the effects work. Um, so they agreed to do a little test reel showing a flying disc champion, um, throwing it and, and getting an idea of what the backlit animation process was somewhat going to be because they, they couldn't, it was very, I imagine it was very difficult to describe to anybody what the final look was going to be for Tron. Well, it, it, it was, and, you know, obviously, <clears throat> I think um, Steve Lesberger shopped this project around, but obviously Disney's the, the only company on earth where you could say oh yeah well we're gonna we're gonna shoot it in live action but then we're gonna blow up every frame onto a piece of codolith uh with the animation punch punch cell pegs on it and shoot it negative and positive and put blue filters and you know they they could relate to that somehow on a single frame basis you know and nobody else could but the codolith was a uh, a large format uh black and white uh, print positive, correct? That you would use to show the individual cells so well, that they could a, be painted. Yeah, it was a film negative, basically. So the the majority of them, uh, in other words, I shot the, the the original test that you were just talking about. We shot on white, and <clears throat> I think Deborah Harry was. It was a screen test for her. At the same time, she ended up not being in the movie, but um, the. Somehow they, they decided, oh, well, we're going to shoot all this in white and then all the markings on the suit are going to be in, a, you know, it's going to be a black suit with white with white lines on it. And I, I suddenly looked at some of the storyboards and I said, well, that means that you, you have to put light in every corner of the frame everywhere that there is, you know. So one of my contributions 
early on in that movie was to say, well, we we got to shoot this thing in black so that we only have to light what we're what we're actually looking at, not like the whole of the background and the whole of everything, you know. So I actually shot it in a completely black background. So the codolith that was made from the 65 millimeter negative frame by frame of everything that we shot was, yeah, it was it was like a 14-inch cell. And basically it's opaque black film and it had um, white lines on it. But they also made negatives of that so as holdouts. And there was a very complicated kind of hand-painted um, version of that to use the negative and positive mats in order to do the the animation work with those cells. You know? They also needed it in a larger format so that the artist could get in there and individually paint the lines right onto the cotolith, correct? Correct, yeah. So they, 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 had to, they had to work on a big scale. And also, you know, any backgrounds that they created also had to be that same way. You know, there were, there were basically... There were three kinds of footage. There was like straight live action footage. And then there was inside the computer footage that was live action that we shot. And of that, some of it was just against black, but others there were sets that had line, like the interiors of the tank, etc., which was spinning around. They, they which all, was they, a cool set, by the way. Yeah, they had, they had lines on. I wish they'd done a lot more of that, you know. Uh, because I thought that stuff was really effective and better than some of the backgrounds that they just kind of threw together. Um, threw together. I guess it was a lot of work, but <clears throat> just trying to throw them up there and yeah. see if they stick. Yeah, exactly. The um, the formats that you were shooting most of the film, uh, where it originated, was um, sixty five millimeter Super Fanavision. Yes. Uh, Anamorphic 35 and Super 35 for the live action sequences. No, they were all shot in 65 millimeter Super Panavision. So at no point there you were you were using any 35 mil negative. No. It was all 65 mil, all 70 65. mil, except for some VistaVision footage that we did. And the VistaVision takes the 30 shoots on 35, but shoots double wide. Is that correct? Exactly. So it's eight perforations in width the frame. So it's on on its side. Over the years, uh, different widescreen formats and variants um, have given cinematographers different means to execute the needs for directors and producers. Uh, Cinerama, VistaVision, CinemaScope, IMAX. Um, over the years, as it has transformed, how have these tools been effective uh, or cost-effective to the different needs of the cinematographer? Well, I don't think they've been very cost-effective. I think... Uh... <clears throat> 4Perf 35 and 4Perf 35 anamorphic have been the, you know, have been probably the the easiest way to make a movie, you know, and also like 185 and Super 35, which is uh, basically 185, but you're using the soundtrack area as well, so you get a slightly bigger area. But the larger formats have always been... You know, television's taking over and they're saying, oh, gosh, we got to do something bigger. And then they did the Technicolor, I mean, um, Technos... Uh, Technoscope? No, no, no. Cinerama. Cinerama, Cinerama which, three-strip. Yes. Which, 
you know, which my dad took me to see a very early This Is Cinerama. And, you know, it's weird because you can see the seam on the three of the three projectors. But it, but it was, like, really amazing, you know. Which you can still see over at, uh, here in Hollywood at the that, Arclight at the Dome, that's the Cinerama I, Dome. That's what I am. <clears throat> and at Epcot at the Canadian Pavilion. You know, these formats, um, well, actually, real quick, before we go into anything else, uh, the point of that question really was, though, to talk about... Um, like you have choices between uh, anamorphic and spherical lenses when you're using these different formats and, you know, different needs for visual effects, different resolutions that you may need for CG processes. How do these types of, of, of outputs, expected outputs, affect your process going into it? Like how, what, uh, what factors determine what large format you want to choose to use? Well, on Tron... I had actually used, you know, we, we knew that we were going to shoot large format for the majority of the movie, which was in the electronic world, you know, in cyberspace. So I had used these cameras, these very same cameras on 2001 Space Odyssey. Oh, look, there's my name so, right on the side yeah, of the camera. So oh, I, I know this guy. I, I scratched, hey, Susie, how you doing? I scratched that magazine right there, you know. And so... You know, I think it was my decision to shoot the live action in 65 millimeter, which didn't make it any easier to do. And in fact, we shot, we we began shooting really without adequate lens testing, and we got the we got the cameras from Panavision, and we started we started shooting, and then we suddenly realized that the the markings on the lenses were off. You know, so we were going. You know, the, the assistant was measuring and we were, you know, we were going at six foot five, you know, and um, the stuff wasn't, the stuff wasn't sharp, you know, and then I suddenly remembered going back that I already knew this about those lenses, that they were out of calibration because Stanley had had to recalibrate those lenses on 2001 and somehow that had been going on in the back room. This camera engineer called Nobby Clark on 2001 had been uh, recalibrating all these lenses. And so I got there and so I'm like I'm two days into the shoot on Tron and I go, oh my God, how could I forget that, you know? So, and of course there's much less depth of field because you've got a, you know, you've got a massive negative. But, uh, you know, as far as like visual effects goes, you know, size does matter. So, you know, all the, all the large format, I'm, you know, I'm not sure about IMAX, which uh, I believe is, uh, 15 perf, 65 millimeter. You know, um, I'm I'm not sure how useful that is for effects, but obviously 65 millimeter and VistaVision were very good formats for shooting plates. And in fact, I did a I did a picture <clears throat> called The Incredible Shrinking Woman, um, and we there were no there were no comp shots actually there were two there were two comp shots but the all the visual effects in that picture were done either front projection or rear projection in camera in camera and we the plates i shot all on large format negatives um in that case in vista vision so am i the only guy in the room who's seen an omnimax film i feel like anytime i ask anybody about omnimax no one ever raises their hand. I, I have seen Omnimax. I saw Omnimax in, yes. in Vancouver. Yes. Um, and 
I went in, and it was a whale show, I think. And it's it, always some kind of animal or space and, or... And, you know, you're sitting back there and you're, you, you know, it's not just a dome that's going sideways. It's a, it's going... It's a half completely. sphere that envelops you. Yeah. The theater that I used to go to in Chicago would, uh, at the opening of the show, they would dim the lights and then bring up the lights that were behind the screen so you could see all the speakers that were all around you. But in the end, you're laying back, like you said, and it's just one dome that just covers half of the world around you it's it's a great way to watch movies especially like science movies and stuff like that right anything in space no it was a, it, it was an interesting format you know the, the the problem that i have with all curved screen formats including cinerama is you know is the is the light leak that you get you know so in i, I prefer seeing 70 millimeter projected flat because when I see it in the Cinerama Dome, you know, you get the earth coming into the frame on the right-hand side and it's washing out the, the black of the stars on the, on the other side of the screen, you know. So it has some definite problems um, in terms of exhibition. That's, that's gold. You're still the only crew that's ever gotten into the Lawrence Livermore Labs. So I guess my question is, what did you people do that no one's ever allowed to go back and shoot there? Well... <laughs> the, first, the first time I went, we went. What did you break, Bruce? We, we, what did you do? We went on a, we went on a location scout. And whoa, 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 whoa! Stop the presses! Stop oh. it! Stop it! That's the end of part one. What about part two? Well, if anybody wants to hear part two, they can uh, send me an envelope with five hundred dollars in it. Or maybe they could just tune in on Thursday to Cinematic Community. That's 48 hours from now. Well, it's a short wait. Oh, all right. I guess I can listen to part two on Thursday. Well, you're going to have to because um, that's it for part one. Are there more blogs that are going to tell me about part two? Gosh, you look at me with such an evil eye when you say these words. Yes, there will be more blogs posted by yours truly. Avoid the blogs. www.cinematicimmunitycast.com. Maybe you could follow us on Twitter or Instagram. You should definitely like us on Facebook. Uh, you can also catch our podcast on Stitcher Radio. Uh, just check us out, Cinematic Immunity. Oh, and one quick note. Um, I know that Super Panavision is not pronounced Super Fanavision, but I just happen to have that uh, vocal faux pas in this episode. Did you say Super Fanavision? I, I mean, I say a lot of things. Just trying to get the mouth to move the way I want it to to make these syllables come out properly. It's quite a task for a guy like me. Usually when we say something stupid, we just edit it out. But I guess this was uneditable. This one was uneditable. I mm. owned it. Which is not probably the worst thing in the world. I'm sure the good people at Panavision would be like, yeah, Panavision. I like that. <laughs>